You are listening to Fantasy Film Ball with Matt and Dylan, and on this show, we turn movies into sports and look at all the Oscar prospects and their fantasy value. I believe that this is going to win Best Picture, and here's why. I mean, Denis Villeneuve got all the nominations he needed for Dune and still missed out on the Best Director slot. Don't let me get my hopes up. The Academy has disappointed me too many times. Thank you to the Academy. Thank you to all of you in this room. I can't remember the last time I walked out of a movie theater on such a high. No matter how certain it seems, anything can happen on nominations morning. Never count the Golden Globes for just doing something off the walls and bonkers. It's the kind of movie that reminds me of why I fell in love with movies. And the Oscar goes to... Welcome into episode 21 of Fantasy Film Ball. My name is Dill. And my name is Matt, and this is a show where we turn movies into sports and sports into something that we don't talk about here. And today, uh, actually, we just recorded our last episode like two days ago. Uh, So this is, we're recording like far before this is releasing because Dylan, you, tomorrow, are off to the Virginia Film Festival and you're going to be quite busy this week so how are you feeling going into this week are you are you excited that's a dumb question no, I'm i know pumped. you're excited yeah i'm pumped i just packed my suitcase before we got on here if you can see a little bit i'm wearing a hat for my hair because i made sure my hair would be all fresh for the film festival to talk to everyone i'm really pumped for all the movies i mean we have knives out we have women talking hopefully we have eo is a great selection that i can't wait to talk about next week when i get back this week We are just catching up on a few of those last movies, and then next week we will be talking about all of those films that you'll be seeing next week. I am, you haven't been spoiled for Glass Onion, right, at this point, right? Not that I think of. Uh, I'll let you know after I see it if there's anything I was, but at the moment I think I'm good. Good. You want to go in completely, like, empty to that film, and you're seeing it tomorrow. So after that, I want to know exactly what you think right away. Awesome, will do. So, as always, we start off our episodes with uh, a question of the week. And because today we're going to be talking about All Quiet on the Western Front and Triangle of Sadness, I want to do a themed question to Triangle of Sadness. So, let's say, okay, there is a mega yacht. Mega yacht and all of this year's Oscar contenders are on it. It's like, let's say that the Dolby Theater in Los Angeles kicks all of the Oscar nominees out. And they're like, okay, so we're going to do the Oscars on a boat now. Now, the Oscar boat gets shipwrecked. Which of this year's nominees survive and how? Ooh. Um, okay, Ooh. I'm going to I'm gonna just put one down right away. I don't know if he's going to be nominated, but I am going to say that Alejandro Gonzalez in Yeratu would go cannibal right away. Like, he would, like, so early. Like, you know, it, it would be, they would still have their food storage and everything. They're on Desert Island. They still have, like, bits of food. But he would, like, go cannibal first chance, even before anyone needed to, just for, like, security. And I have a feeling Kate Blanchett would join him. Kate Blanchett just gives, like, cannibal vibes a little bit. But not in a bad way. Not in a bad way. All right, so I took this question a little bit differently. I took this as if the like the people who were nominated were in character. So, for <laughs> example, um, 
Acting nominees Maverick and Wayman dart from their blockbuster living quarters to get to the wheel to attempt to do everything everywhere on this impossible mission. But on their way there, they're stopped by the ensemble Bones and all who are making the most out of their situation, you know, devouring the rest of the Oscar hopefuls in the critical indie flick cabins that don't get nominated, such as Callum's already open womb from After Sun, Willems, who's no longer living. And most tragically, Marin and Lee are not eating popsicles while holding Andrew and Domino's arms in a romantic fashion, accompanied by weird Weird Al's rendition of cha-cha real smooth playing over the loudspeakers. So now we jump over to the bridge. Our captains, Patriarch and Colm from Banshee Venetian, are too busy arguing to notice that they have crashed into a whale. In the next room over, you can hear all the women talk, including Mamie Till conversating with Norma Jean, and she said her decision was to leave. While the women arrive to the main deck, they see that Elvis and Whitney Houston are duetting the Beatles' iconic track, Glass Onion, while their backing instrument, <laughs> instrumentation is formed solely of the Dahomey tribe, while being conducted by the one and only Lydia Tarr. Instead of getting the lifeboats provided by Bruce Wayne, Best Picture nominees Sylvia Gaccio, Nellie Roy, and Mitzi Fableman are just dancing the night away. They're just too happy to notice anything bad is going on around them. The Navi and citizens of Wakanda are attempting to help out the rest of our Oscar hopefuls into the lifeboats. First in are Pinocchio, The Sun, and some bros for a total of 13 lives. Across the ocean could be an Empire Light or the Western Front. But the end of this journey, the only thing people really care about is that if Jack and younger Tom survive to get Harry Styles that much close to a nomination and on the greatest beer run ever. However, the answer for that is pretty simple. Nope. Okay. Uh, you really went all out on that one. That- I mean, the movie, uh, Triangle of Sadness goes all out. So I had, really to, I had to match the level of the intensity of that movie. <laughs> Okay, I I think I just have to take a moment to appreciate that. Okay, I'm going to say there's one missed opportunity in there. Pinocchio should have been swallowed by the whale. Yes, you're right. You're right. That (laughs) was a missed opportunity. I was trying to think, how can I fit Pinocchio into this? I was like, he would be one of the bros, but getting swallowed by the whale makes a lot more sense thematically. That's true. That's true. Well, okay, I'll I'll just go back and say one more thing on mine, because I already talked about um, how Inyari 2 is definitely going to be a cannibal, and so is Kate Blanchett, but not in a bad way. But I also want to say that I do think, um, just like as actors, if there was a shipwreck, I have a feeling Michelle Yeoh, Margot Robbie, Tom Cruise, and Jamie Lee Curtis would survive no matter what. Mm-hmm. They have, like, survivor's instincts. Those four... I don't care if anyone else does those four. They're making it through. I I fully back all those people getting through. All right. Well, um, thank you for that. Uh, That was a lot. That was that was um, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. This is what we're here for. And uh, we're going to move on to our film ball update for the beginning of November. So right now, uh, in first place, we have The Film Drunk at 938 points. Second place, we have Arno at 757 points. In third place, we have me with 693 points. In fourth place, we have Brother Bro with 611 points. Fifth place, we have you right now with 531 points. And in last place, we have Austin with 511 points. Um, so at this point, really, anything can happen still. Like, we're still very early on in the game, and these points right now are basically almost entirely from Metacritic scores. 
and like some festival prizes, a little bit of Critics' Choice Doc, a little bit of Gotham's, but there's still, the bulk of the points are still on the table waiting to be earned. So this ranking right now, this is nothing. But today we had our latest waiver draft uh, where we each pick one more film for our teams. And Dill, do you want to tell us about the November waiver draft? What happened? Yes, I'll gladly hop into that. So first up, we had Austin. As Matt mentioned, we do reverse standing. So whoever's in the bottom gets the first pick. And he went with The Good Nurse, which just came out on Netflix when I have not had a chance to watch, but I'm really excited to watch because I've heard varying opinions on this movie, but I think we can all agree Eddie Redmayne has that type of hype that could get him some random SAG or Golden Globe supporting actor nomination, oh, which just totally. could be a great November pick. I, I completely agree. I think that he... Uh, when Austin drafted this, he just went, I am rooting on Eddie Redmayne to, I can't, I can't, I can't, his way into a, a nomination for something. And while I don't think Redmayne's making the Oscars, he totally seems like a Jared Leto in The Little Things type, or like uh, Ben Affleck in The Tender Bar, where he just shows up a few places and we start thinking, can Eddie Redmayne make it? Um, which was very, very interesting. And then you chose next. What was your pick? So I like picking, especially early on the waiver drafts, I like taking movies that don't have a lot of points yet that could build over time. That way I can still get higher priorities throughout the next few months. Like I took Senior last month that hasn't had a critic score come out. And this month I did the same thing with another documentary. Honestly, the one I was deciding 1A or 1B last month with Senior, but I went with Goodnight Oppie, which is one that could show up in another category too, Best Visual Effects. Will it? Probably not, but I think it could make the short list. So I'll take those chances to get a possible two-category nominee here in November, because why not? I think that was a great pick, and it's a very, very charming film. And the more I think about it, the more I'm like, yeah, I actually do think that this will get into documentary. I wasn't so convinced a few months ago, but right now I, I very much am feeling like it's going to make it. After that, we had another documentary pick, this one by Brother Bro. He moved the territory, which is another doc that has potential to go some ways. It's just how much does the focus happen because the studio does have some other documentaries out there, like Fire Love at their campaign, National Geographic, that is. So it's which one do they decide to make that main push? Will it be the territory? Will it be Fire Love? Or can both coexist? Well, one thing about the territory as well is it has a very high metascore. Like that is a, a really, really strong Metacritic score right there. So whether or not it makes the Oscars, that's a solid pick no matter what. This is going to clear 100 points easy, and really in these waiver drafts, that's what you want. You want consistent 100 points or more. So after that was actually your pick. Would you like to talk about why you picked this one? Oh, sure. Yeah, so I picked The Pale Blue Eye, which is a very bold pick. So my first pick... Um, in October was Emancipation, and now I've picked The Pale Blue Eye. And a lot of people have looked at that and gone, why are you doing that? Those two are not going anywhere. What are you doing? And here's my reasoning for those. Um, there are so many films that have premiered that people, we know the value of a film like uh, The Wonder, for example, which is still unpicked. We know the value of that film. But the reason I picked both Emancipation and The Pale Blue Eye is because in October, November, there are still some films that are unscreened that uh, have not had reactions come out that are still just, we've heard some rumors here and there. What I am looking for at this point in a waiver draft pick 
is something that's untested, something that could be a big surprise. I have a feeling that the pale blue eye could be something, and if it's not, eh, it's not a big loss for me. I have time to make that point difference up. No, you make a great point about the Indie Spirits. Like last year, I waited on Zola for a few months. It's like, this movie has potential to do something, but I don't want to take it, and it just gives me like 100 points. And then I was able to draft in like either December or January after the Indie Spirits happened. It's like, there's 200 some points just for that movie alone. But it's kind of funny that the Pale Blue Eye went, because that's been like our running joke here on the show the last three weeks, but into a movie that's more of a running joke overall, which it surprisingly took this long to go. We have that little donkey that could go into Arno, EO. I am so happy that he picked this. Arno has been talking about EO all year long. He recently saw it. He loved it. You're hopefully going to see it this week. I hope you love it, too. I'm still going to be a little salty. I wanted EO next month, but, you know, you win some, you lose some. Because I was able to get Good Luck Oppie a month later, but EO just didn't last that long. However, I want to wish good luck to Arno, and same thing for our next movie. Film Drunk took good luck to you, Leo Grand, with our final selection of the November waiver priority, which this is another one which I noticed happened a lot with some of Film Drunk's picks so far. He likes picking those movies that are already out, that are proven, that are proven to give him at least 100 points in growing through the season because he did that uh this month he did that last month with bad guys that's in like the upper 70s lower 80s and a lot of his in draft picks for that as well which has him in first place now because of the post november uh waiver draft he's already eclipsed a thousand points for the season i was really hoping that uh good luck to you leo grand would stay for at least one more month because i was like oh i could get that next month that'd be a good next month pick because it would be right before the golden globes and it would really be like that's that's where that film's going to perform well. So I was really hoping I could hold on for one more month. But, you know, that's how this game works. We lose these things. If we don't act on them right away, we're going to lose them. And so uh, good for Film Drunk. And like you said, Film Drunk is now officially the first one in our league to pass a thousand points. Good for him. But will it last? That is the, the question that I have. Um, and so... I just want to look at the state of the race right now and examine our teams and talk about the films that we have on our teams that are still, you know, best picture contenders. Because at the beginning of the year, we drafted stuff. And and the way that we felt then is not the way that we feel now, because we now know how a lot of these films really are. So I went through everyone's teams and trimmed it down to the films that I still think have a shot in best picture. Uh, whether that's a strong chance or just kind of like, mm, it's like a dark horse. There's there's a possibility of that, but I don't really think so. So I cut down the teams. And then, Dylan, I want to hear from you a prediction of, based on this, who do you think is winning? And we can have a little discussion about that. So here's the state of the race right now. Austin has Babylon, which is yet to be screened. The Whale which is yet to have a Metascore. It has been screened. It's gained some points here and there for Brendan Fraser, Black Panther Wakanda Forever, and After Sun. So that's that's four films that I think reasonably, I would say three of those reasonably could be in Best Picture, but I feel like we can't yet entirely count out After Sun. Uh, Dylan, you have Bardo, Avatar, Elvis, I Want to Dance with Somebody, and All Quiet on the Western Front. That's five films that I think are still in the race. Because as much as I don't really think I Want to Dance with Somebody will be in the race, 
it's still unscreened. It's still untested. We don't know for sure where that film is going to land. So you've got five films that are potential contenders. Now, are these all the strongest contenders? I'm not entirely sure. But there's a world where, let's say, all of these films do get ton of nominations. That could really benefit you a lot. Then we've got Brother Bro, and Brother Bro really suffered from the fact that his first pick was The Sun. That was a, a tough, tough luck moment, because I won't even count The Sun as one of these films, because I think it's definitively out of the race. But Brother Bro has Top Gun Maverick, Glass Onion, and Till, all films that are very much in the race, although the only one that I would actually predict to get into Best Picture would be Top Gun Maverick. Then I've got Everything Ever All at Once, Tar, and Pinocchio. So my first three picks, I would say all three of those still stand a chance in Best Picture. Arno has Women Talking, She Said, and Triangle of Sadness. Now I think that those top two are really strong in Best Picture, but Triangle of Sadness, as we'll be talking about today, might not be uh, the Oscars type of thing. So that he's got two there that are really strong contenders. And then we've got Film Drunk, who I said after our first draft, Film Drunk, I think you're winning. And looking at it now, I kind of still feel that way. I'm not sure. But Film Drunk has The Fablements, Banshees of Inisherin, Decision to Leave, and The Woman King. He also has Empire of Light, but I'm not counting that as Best Picture Contender anymore. But with this lineup, there's two in there that are, are like top three contenders. And then, of course, there's The Woman King, there's Decision to Leave, both of which are not the strongest contenders, but could make their way in to that race. So looking right now at that state of the race, looking at which films everyone has, how do you see this game falling, Dill? I think that you made a lot of great points for a lot of different teams across the board. I still think this is anyone's race. I don't think there's a single team that does not have a shot to win Best Picture because, yes, some teams may have more bigger contenders, but other teams could be deeper. Like you mentioned, my team, for example, maybe doesn't have a consensus top five best picture candidate, but it's one of the few that still has five potential contenders sort of thing. But I think if you look deeper at some of the teams, Film Drunk, for example, since he's in first, he only has three movies that have not received a critic score yet. But most of those movies do have high critic scores, which means high points across the board. On top of the best picture nominees that you mentioned, he still has Fire Love, which is looking like it'd say for real contender and documentary, not just the one that we all think will miss. Has Turning Red, a movie that seems to be pretty consistent across the board, getting animation nominees uh, nominations throughout the way. And then he just picked up a Golden Globes contender. And who knows what Causeway could be? Causeway is still a movie that has the potential maybe not to be a best picture, but an actress or a supporting actor type player for some critics circle. So he has a lot of potential points. It's just how many points will keep funneling into the team outside of the big three that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And then you go to another team, which um, you may be selling yourself short, but if Tar and Pinocchio look how they're doing now you have three solid best picture nominees because with most consensus right now people have tar top six top seven most people are bringing pinocchio up into the top 10 so that's three top uh that's three best picture nominees with uh some other movies throughout the way that can score some points like matilda like corsage like living and then who knows what emancipation or pair of blue eye does and i just think every team has good depth right now like no team is lacking or no team is completely blowing everyone out of the way like in years past like last year you had dune which on draft day was still kind of a question but once that movie started screening like oh this is sweeping all the text the year before arno had nomadland which 
from almost the jump was the consensus, this is going to sweep, this is going to do everything. So this year, there's not a movie like that. Mm -hmm. uh, some people thought it could have been Babylon at one point, could have been Fablemans, uh, could be Women Talking, could be Everything Everywhere. There's no sweeper right now. We have a very open race, and with Best Picture being open, no one's going to get that consensus like the last few years of like 1.5K points for an individual movie. There's not going to be that one or two movies that just blow the rest of them out of the water. Absolutely. I think that one thing I'll say about this league, which... I've seen we we have multiple multiple leagues running at this point and I think our league is actually the most balanced of any of them. Like you said, I think at this point it's anyone's game. Um I do I think that some people have better shots than others, but I think at this point it's going to be a tight tight race the entire way along. And one thing I will say as well, just um a reminder that winning this game is not all about having the best picture winner. Because one of my favorite examples is in 2019, Arno, uh, in the league that we were playing at that time, Arno had both Parasite and 1917 on his team. He did not come first place. The team that came first place was a much more well-rounded team, a team that had a lot of consistent contenders that might not have been the highest, but that team had Little Women, had Joker, and had Ford v. Ferrari. So having those three films, which all were smaller Best Picture contenders, but also having stuff like Uncut Gems, having some films that just performed very solidly across the board, that is what launched that team to the number one slot and, and winning. Um, so ultimately, you know, not having the Best Picture winner is not the end of the world at this point. Yeah, if we just look at our league last year, uh, first place was you with nearly 50, uh, 5,100 points, and then last place had just over 3,000. So that was a 2,000-point disparity. I don't think our leagues have that this year. I think our league will all be within maybe even a few hundred points where you, one movie could be the difference of you being first compared to you being six. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I really completely agree with you. I think it's going to be very, very close this year. Uh, but we're going to see how that shapes up in the coming months. But we do have to make a prediction now. My prediction, I say Film Drunk's winning. What's your prediction? I think I am going to go with you just because I think that if the oh, hype so for nice. everything everywhere is the <laughs> is what we both think it could be, if Tar is the best actress sweeper that a lot of other people, not myself, but other people think, and if Pinocchio is going to get its way into picture, and if picture means it's coming with probably a production design, probably a visual effects, probably a song nomination, that's three movies that are have, because if Target's picture, it's probably going to have to get director or screenplay or supporting actress. So that's two, three big movies with very deep slates, as well as having, uh, let me scroll back here to pull up your team, as well as having Descendant, which is a sleeper for uh, best documentary like we talked about here on the show a few weeks ago, and then who knows what Emancipation or Pair Blue Eye could be. That could be a lot of points for one of those if Will Smith or Christian Bale latches one in the best actor race because we still do kind of have a gap for spots four and five. We talked about my team a little bit, and we talked about Pinocchio and that potentially being a Best Picture contender. And in the news this week, there is, again, we recorded our last episode like two days ago, so there's not really a whole lot of new news, but something that has been in the news is Netflix put out a four-year consideration ad for Pinocchio where they don't mention animated feature. They don't go four-year consideration in animated feature. They go four-year consideration best picture. 
the very top. And right underneath Best Picture is Guillermo del Toro's face. So what does that say to me? It says that Netflix has come to their goddamn senses and they're going to push Pinocchio as their main push. That's what this feels like to me. This feels like vindication. It feels like what I was saying with like, oh, Pinocchio needs to score over 90 to get a best picture push. It happened. They're giving it a best picture push. So do I think that Pinocchio gets in now? Yeah. Yeah. What do you think about this ad? And are, are you, I, I mean, I'm biased. I'm going to admit right now, I'm biased. I've wanted Pinocchio to get in there all year long. I have it on my team. I extra want it. So from someone a little bit less biased than me, do you think that this is actually Netflix's push or is this just like they're doing this for every film? I'm also not as I'm not also not biased because I have two of Netflix's other main priorities on my team as well. So uh, what my original case for Bardo still having a shot for picture for director is we saw what happened last year with Nightmare Alley, a movie that got lower critical reception, but still under the power of its director and the director's favor within the Academy voting branches, still powered its way into Best Picture, into some technicals. And I was just not my case for Bardo, which Bardo, uh, AGI is someone that the Academy really likes, even if critics don't like. But Game of Thrones is back. And it's not just like someone else can take his slot this year for being the the uh, the industry's favorite director. He's still here. Pinocchio is a story a lot of people know. So it's going to get eyes on it. It's not like one of those adult animation movies that are just not going to get eyes laid on it. This movie's going to be seen. It's Netflix. It's going to be out there. And I think that if the cards are played right, this could get in. I think we'll know. Obviously, we'll know better once it comes to nomination morning, but the real side, I think, on nomination morning is going to be for production design. If Pinocchio is in for production design, it's in for picture. If it misses production design, I think it's just going to be animation and song, which I know is a very, very far off like take to have, but that's at least how I'm thinking of when it comes. Because I think this is going to be a year where we don't know what Netflix is going to do the whole way through. I think Bardo, Pinocchio, All Quiet, Glass Onion, White Noise maybe even are all going to have its moments where it's like, okay, this is its push. And then like a week later, it's like, okay, maybe not. It's this movie. And then it's this movie because they all come out within the span of about a month or a month and a half of each other, like one a weekend. So it's like, okay, what's the the talk of the town this week? And I mean, Bardo comes out in like three weeks. I feel like once Bardo comes out, everyone's in a rush to be like, this is Netflix's push. And then White Noise comes out on Thanksgiving. Like, okay, actually White Noise is out now. And then uh, Pinocchio comes out and then we have Glass Onion. And it's like, oh. So where do we feel at the moment? And I think all four or five of these movies could still have it shot for picture, but I think only one's going to get in. I don't think Netflix is going to be able to get two this year. So it's just which one do they actually put the most effort in? To tie this episode all in together with everything ever all at once, which which uh, timeline are we in right now? Is it the one where Pinocchio is the best picture? Is it Bardo? Is it all quiet? But yeah, that's how I feel. I hope that we live in a world, in a, in a universe in the infinite multiverses where Pinocchio is a Best Picture nominee. And I think that we do. I think that we do. And I actually disagree. I I think that production design is not the be-all, end-all for it because there's never been an animated film in there. But if we start seeing Pinocchio on nominations morning, picking up visual effects, picking up score, picking up um, screenplay even, then that's those are the signs. But before that, there's going to be tons of precursors. I want to see Pinocchio make AFI. I want to see it make NBR. 
I want to see it make, uh, I don't think it'll make the Globes, but if it makes, like, score, song, animated at the Globes, that's great. If it makes picture at the Globes, that's huge. Critics' Choice, that's going to be a big one, too. Even BAFTA. If it makes BAFTA, that's a big, big, big deal uh, for Pinocchio. So, but we're, we're going to have to see, and I, I would want to see it make, it won't make the picture five at BAFTA, but it could make some other categories there. And if it does, then like, it's coming. It's totally coming. Anyways, though, we are going to get into our films for this week. And this week, we are, of course, as you might have gleaned from the title of this video, we're talking about Triangle of Sadness and All Quiet on the Western Front. So you just saw Triangle of Sadness today, so you're fresh out of the movie, and we're going to talk about that one first. So before we get into some like discussion points and topics, I want to know, just in general, what's the vibe? How are you feeling about it? I'm very, very mixed with this movie. I mentioned being mixed with, like, Tar last week, but I'm even more mixed. And that goes for both movies today. Both of um, Triangle of Sadness and All Quiet on the Western Front, I really like some stuff. I am less on other stuff. Uh, but overall, I did enjoy the film. I think the funniest part of the movie was there was a group of about four or five old ladies, like, two seats to my left, and during the first act, they're like, wait, is this not the the boat crash movie? Where's Woody Harrelson? Are we in the wrong movie? What is going on? Why is this about modeling? And then they go to the boat and like, oh, we're in the right movie. And at the end of the movie, they're like, why did we just watch this? This stunk. And I'm like, interesting take there. Um, and yeah. Old uh, people hate how, this how did you feel? Yes. Uh, that's one <laughs> thing. There's a lot of movies recently that I've been the youngest person in the crowd by a lot. Maybe it's because of the time I go to choose to watch movies. I like going during the day compared to at night. But like that same thing happened with Tar. There was multiple people who walked out of Tar. Uh, there was someone who walked out of this movie. There was someone who walked out of a different movie. But uh, uh, um, Ticket of Paradise the other day. Someone walked out of that. And so it's just recently that's something I've noticed more where I never noticed people walking out and it's happening more often. I don't know if that's a sign of these specific movies or just the people who I happen to be watching them with, but I think that's something that at least to note it for Triangle of Sadness when you talk about its perception to various different demographics. So did you saw this movie a little bit ago. Did you think it was too on the nose? I So I get where you're coming from with being mixed on this movie. I think it's a lot overall, but for me... I loved it. I, I think I've talked about it on the show before as well. And I've said, like, for, this is my fourth favorite movie of the year. I think it's brilliant. I think it's absolutely hilarious. I think it's extremely witty. And just, like, uh, there's so much to me that is just so exceptional about this. I love that it blends very elevated humor with very low humor. Uh, there's a physical element to the comedy that feels very similar to Jacques Tati for me, which uh, Jacques Tati is a filmmaker from the 1950s and 60s who made one of the seminal comedies of all time called Playtime. Uh, and in Playtime, the thing that I think is so amazing about that film, and which many people think is amazing about the film, is that it's a comedy where essentially you could never watch the main character in that movie and you'd still find things to love. Like, you can just scan the screen and see what the extras are doing, and it's hilarious. Like, there's constantly stuff going on in the background that is so funny, and this has that same sort of level of humor. Like, it feels like everyone is 
is playing a character, and when they're on screen, they're doing something fun and something worth watching. And there's so many physical jokes in here that I think are so funny as well. Like, um, there's a joke with Nutella in it that, for some reason, I was like, this is the funniest shit ever, where when we first see the boat, we see this briefcase, like, basically being shipped across the world, where it's like, oh my god, what is in this briefcase? It must be something so valuable. They're flying it in a helicopter. They're dropping it off the helicopter into the ocean. There's a team of divers going to get this briefcase and bring it to this yacht. What's in the yacht? It's two jars of Nutella. And then through the movie, we see the Nutella show up, and like we know the entire time, every time we see the Nutella, we're like, oh, the journey that that Nutella took to get here like probably cost a few hundred thousand dollars which is so funny to me. So funny. And yeah, it's on the nose. It's extremely, extremely on the nose with its commentary of um, how the triangle, like there's a hierarchy in this world of like there, the rich sit on top of the triangle um, and the working class are underneath and they're holding up the wealthy and if you flip that triangle over and you make it so that the wealthy now has to hold up the working class, they can never do that because they are incapable because they've always just hired people to do their work, which we later on in the film see as um, Dolly DeLeon uh, and her character of the, the ship's cook. She's the one who, you know, uh, becomes the most powerful because she's the only one that can fend for herself. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's on the nose, but I love it. And uh, I also love Don't Look Up. So the humor worked for me. Did the humor work for you? I, it did at times, yeah. I would also say I love Don't Look Up. Don't Look Up was in my top five movies of the year last year. Um, this will not be in my top five of the movies at, at the moment. I'm still working through how I feel about this because normally I don't, like, watch anything else or, like, read anything else before coming on here. So, like, all of, like, my opinions are, like, like skewed from, like, another perspective or something. I really want you for this movie to be like, help me learn more about what I just watched. But I was like, no, I'll wait. I only have a few hours until we record. Um, I really liked Act 1. And I have a feeling most people probably say Act 1 was their least favorite just because it's not the, not like the movie you were promised sort of thing. But I don't know if uh, fashion and modeling is a industry that really fascinates me. And I really like their perceptions and like the knocks they were using against like the fashion industry. It's like, these are really funny. This is really hitting me. I really like the opening scene, like when uh, the interviewers and they're asking. H&M. Yes, H&M. Blinciaga, H and M. But I really like I really like that opening, and I like the discussion at the dinner table about who's paying. You make more than me. I make less. Yada yada yada. And then they get to the boat, and there's stuff on the boat I really like, and there's stuff on the boat I'm like, okay, this joke's getting old. I, I want a new joke. Like you're using the same joke over and over again. And then we get to Act Three without spoiling what that is exactly at the moment now. And I'm like, okay, we're back. I, I really like this act too. Um, just act the portion of the boat was my least favorite, which has my most like wary and questions, not no pun intended with the boat wearing back and forth, but wearing questions about this movie. Just like, how do I feel? Cause there's, I really like act one. Like act one was a lot of fun for me. Act three was good. And act two, I was like, okay, let's move on sort of thing. Um, I obviously I said, I haven't seen a lot of other people's thoughts, but, um, why do you think like critics don't like this movie as much? I think what you're saying is really interesting because, when I've seen a lot of people criticize this movie and hate this movie, what they're saying is the beginning drags, the end drags, I liked the middle. 
And so you're saying the exact opposite, which is is very interesting to me. But I personally, I liked all of it. I find the critic score for this very interesting, and I found it interesting since Cannes, because when it came out at Cannes, you were hearing reactions from people on the ground there saying, like, people love this movie. Like, this is really popular. And critics just kept slamming it and slamming it and slamming it. And the entire time I was like, why why do they hate this so much? Because it's it's clearly well-liked by the industry, which it is, by, um, you know, it won the Palme d'Or. So, I don't know. I, I would say, I, I would guess that... Um, a lot of people don't like it because of how heavy-handed it is. I think also the structure weirds some people out, and I think it's also because it does mix that lowbrow and highbrow humor, where, you know, one moment you have jokes about the fashion industry and you have jokes about social inequality and jokes about how inept the wealthy are, and then the next moment it's, you know, people are puking everywhere and there's you know, um, sewage waste coming through the hallways and everything. It blends that lowbrow and highbrow in a way that I think might make some people uncomfortable and might make some people feel as though this is not their type of movie to be watching. So I, I can't say that I get why people hate it, but if someone told me I absolutely hate that movie, I would say, sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But like I said, Old people hate this movie, and I've mentioned on the show before that during TIFF, I spoke to multiple old people in rush lines, and they always told me that Empire of Light was their favorite and that they hated Triangle of Sadness. Those were the two takes that I constantly heard from old people in line at TIFF. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm. Why do you think that people hate this film? First, I wish I would have asked the old people next to me at my showing today, why did you not like this movie? I could probably guess because they were very vocal the whole movie, but why? Um, I don't know because I think what you're saying is probably right where it's the mix of high-low. We saw critics did not like Don't Look Up last year, so they don't like when stuff is being like – jokes at least are being like spelled out for them sort of thing. My my issue with the movie wasn't the like the lowbrow jokes. Like I thought one of the funniest scenes was the lady uh, on the toilet – puking and shitting at the same time like i don't know that really made me laugh and like when she goes from one wall to the other wall because the boat's rocking one wall uh shit uh pukes other wall shits boom boom back and forth like that that i don't know that was really funny to me my guess is probably the same thing that you said is just uh the disparaging between the the comedic tones where they're not like lining and then i also one of my issues with this movie was its length there's no reason for this movie to be two and a half hours long uh, i i felt the runtime I think in all three acts, honestly, they were just, I liked those specific acts I mentioned before more than the other ones. So I think all those factors being put together has people negative on it, which is really interesting um, to me because you mentioned before that most of the people who are like negative in the movie said that they thought act one and act three dragged the most. With the most awards buzz this movie's getting outside of original screenplay is for a supporting actress of Dolly D. Leon, who's primarily just in act three because she plays the uh i think they say in the movie she's the uh like the toilet keeper like she's in charge of like the sewage and whatnot um so that's like the jokes of act two and then now we rise the jokes to the top to be in charge for act three yeah i said that she was the cook earlier i was wrong you're right she's um she is uh in charge of cleaning toilets is what she does yeah so for dolly de leon i think she's great I wouldn't say that she's, like, 
Oscar great, though, which is what some of the hype said at first. But I don't know. I think she's she's just a great presence in the film. She's very funny. She has a few moments where she's very big and very, like... Like, I love, love, love the scene where um, she cooks and then she kind of tells the people, like, no, 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 no. Here, I'm powerful. Like, that mm-hmm. was... That was just, like, a holy shit moment. And then she kind of becomes, like, very predatory and scary. Um, yes. Which, honestly, I I just found her character to be so interesting and so funny. And as much as people say that this film's very on the nose, I think it's also pretty nuanced in the way that it kind of shows that, like, yeah, the system's incredibly unfair, but given the chance you'd be at the top of the triangle too, wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. Right? Because it takes this character who has been at the very bottom rung of, of the societal ladder, and now she gets a chance to become the one in charge. And yeah, she's not going to be equitable. She's, she's going to take that, and she's going to she's gonna do what people have done to her her entire life. It's not like she's going to be different because she's seen the other side of the triangle. No, she's she's going to take advantage of that. I don't know though. I I wouldn't say that she's winner nom level. So what do you think? I thought she was cool, but I thought there was two other performances that would be in like my personal lineup at the moment, at least because I mean, there's still a lot of movies I haven't seen. I see some of them this upcoming week, but uh, uh, I apologize for these pronunciations. I'm probably not going to do them right. But uh, Zach Loberic, uh, who plays the older man, who uh, I sell shit. I sell he shit. He was. He was hilarious. Like he hit every comedic beat for me. The con- like the best comedy came from him from this movie, which I think is kind of funny when I said I don't like Act Two because he's uh, heavily featured in Act Two, but he worked for me in Act Two, and then he really works for me in Act Three. And then I also thought uh, Charlie Dean, uh, who sadly passed away, but I don't know if she would count as lead or supporting, but I thought she was fantastic, really selling that uh, character. From like the highs that you see in the beginning to the lows that you get later on in the movie, I thought both of them would be my two highlights uh, from the film in the acting per se. But Dali De Leon was really good too. Just I prefer those two other performances. I wish we were getting more of the awards buzz when it came to Triangle of Sadness. Absolutely. And now we're talking about awards buzz. Let's talk Oscar chances. Do we see? I mean, we've talked. We've said in the past we think that Triangle of Sadness is getting in. We've both seen it now. Do we see Ruben Ostlund having his Yorgos Lanthimos moment this year, down the line, or never at all? And what are the Oscar chances for Triangle of Sadness, just in general? See, like, when this movie had its premiere at Cannes, I would definitely said yes. Director, screenplay, maybe picture. And then just, there's... I haven't heard much about this movie since. Like, it showed at TIFF, and I didn't hear anyone talk about it. I mean, I heard you talk about it from just saying, like, the thing in line. But, like, I didn't hear anyone else who was there, like, say, like, oh, yeah, I saw Triangle Ascendance, and this is what I thought. And then the movie came out, and I had to, like, fight to see this movie. Like, it came out on limited release a few weeks ago, and it just popped up in my city this week. And I looked because they put out the showtimes on Tuesday. We were currently recording on Tuesday night. Next week, it only has one showtime a day, so it's already Ooh. being pulled from theaters. And... I don't know. There just doesn't seem like there's buzz for this movie. And I would say if this movie could compete in international, which it can't, I've seen some people like, oh, this is an international contender. It's not. I think that would definitely be 
probably a win for international. We have another international movie to talk about later, and I've been Team Bardo all along. But this movie just screams like, oh, yeah, it's witty. It's campy. It's it's the international flavor, but it's not eligible there. And I don't see this getting into director. And original screenplay is way too hard this year, way too stacked. And I don't see this movie getting in as a lone screenplay nominee. Maybe it could, but it would need to see a rise in passion. And still, I mean, if you look at original screenplay, you have Fablemans, you have Everything Everywhere, you have Babylon, you have Banshees, you have Tar, you have Bardo. Uh, I'm sure there's other ones I'm forgetting right there, but that's six I would put above Triangle of Sadness at the moment. Yeah, I... I agree with you. Um, it's screenplay or bust. I would say this is above Bardo in screenplay, although Bardo's above it in most other categories, because I haven't heard anything good about the screenplay for Bardo, but I've heard a lot of good stuff about this. I mean, the screenplay for this is is the, the thing that people talk about in this film. So I could see a world where this gets into screenplay. I, could s- I can't see a world where this gets into director. It's too packed now. Um, but I definitely think that there's a possibility that in the future, a few years down the road, we could get Ruben Ostlin's The Favorite Moment, where like he puts out enough English language films, people respect him, and he finally does something that gets him into Oscar contention in a big way. And like you said, if this film was in Swedish instead of in English, this would win international feature. Hands down, unquestionably, I feel just like 100% the only reason it's not winning an Oscar is because it's in English, which is kind of funny. Yeah, that's like the opposite of, I think, our next movie that we're going to talk about. Um, but yeah, I I really liked it. I do like obviously I had some issues. I think after talking about it a little bit here, I think I'm going to settle around a seven, which is what I gave Tar. I like this more than Tar. So I think I will give this more maybe like a, a higher seven where Tar was a lighter seven um, sort of thing. I think a rewatch will really help this film for me either definitively be like, OK, my issues are real issues or my issues were just not like they're solved after hearing the jokes a second time because there are some more like direct or like jokes that aren't just like oh we're just telling you right on the nose there's some like more nuanced stuff so maybe a rewatch will help i don't think i'll rewatch this until it hits like home video so it won't be until like january or february right when we get to like our final end of the year personal pick sort of thing but it's one i'm excited to watch again because there's some stuff i really liked and sadly i'm a huge woody harrelson fan i think he was probably the weakest part of the movie oh interesting i really liked woody harrelson well we know how i feel about this i love it i give it a 10 out of 10 uh, one of my favorites of the year, and it's one that I cannot wait to see again. Although saying that's a little bit contradictory because it has been in theaters near me and I have not gone to see it again, uh, and I should go to see it again, but uh, the person I go see every movie with hates vomiting, so I'm like, I there's no way I'm taking you to see this movie um, because, like, with a phobia of vomiting, this would just be a nightmare to see. So, like... Um, and, and it hasn't been one that I've been like, oh, I need to go see this again on my own. Now on to another one of my favorite things of the year. We've got All Quiet on the Western Front. Uh, I've talked about this a lot. I talked about it at TIFF. I said that this film is a technical masterpiece. I said that I think that this film might be the best war movie ever made. I said a lot of big, big things. And the question here is... Did it live up to that for you, Dylan, or did I just massively overhype this? 
So I think there's a little bit more complexity that comes to all quiet on the Western Front, for me at least, because I did not have the pleasure of seeing it in a theater. And I've seen a lot of people say that they saw this in a theater, in the surround system and the screen size and the audio was just so good, so immersive. And watch on Netflix at home. I mean, my TV's cool, but it's not like the best TV in the world. I didn't have that same experience. There was, I still felt like really immersed into some scenes. I thought the the war elements and the set designs and the cinematography and the sound were all really good. But the non-war scenes for me kind of dragged the movie down, which I feel like if I was watching in a enclosed environment like a movie theater, at, maybe at a festival, maybe not at a festival, I would have had a better experience with it. Um, which is really weird because Netflix movies normally show at one of my local theaters and this one didn't, but if we just jumped to last year at the same release date, um, passing showed in the theater, which passing isn't really a movie. I feel like you would need to watch in a theater, which I did. Uh, but on the other hand, all Quan the Western front screams, this needs a cinematic experience. And then I watched it at home and I feel like that really negated some elements of the movie for me, but I still, I still thoroughly enjoyed it. Okay. So what I'm getting from you is that as much as the technical side really engaged you, you were not as engaged by the emotional side of the film and, and the narrative. So do you think that that lack of emotional connection to the story is why the critics score is in the mid seventies? Because this is a film that to me, when I first saw it, I was like, Oh yeah, this feels like high eighties, best picture contender and everything. That's, that's how I felt when I first saw it. And I know many other pundits felt the same way about it. So do you think that lack of emotional connection is why the film is not maybe rising to that level? For me, at least, I don't think that's the reason why. I think I think most of my issues for myself were because of the setting I watched it in. I can't speak for a lot of other people because I don't know where they watch. But I feel like if a critic who didn't like it as much at home, that could be a big portion. But if it's someone who watched it in a theater, maybe that was the reason for their uh, distaste. Not distaste, but uh, lack of positivity for the film. Because I think to, just using two very recent examples of Dunkirk in 1917, I think those lack emotional connectivity to the character but they work really well because for me at least war movies aren't about connecting to a lead like Tom Hanks in Saving Private Ryan or Andrew Garfield in Hacksaw Ridge or Mark Wahlberg in The Lone Survivor it's more about you feeling like you're in the setting you're in the war you're in the field you're going through the actions you're there with them you're not him but you're with him sort of thing and I thought this movie did a really good job of that when you were in the trenches when you were on the front and even some of the scenes where you weren't like, I still think the talking scenes when you're not, like, fighting, like, when it was the soldiers talking, Paul and his uh, his brothers, like, when they were talking, I still thought those were engaging. It was just, for me, when you leave the Western Front scenes to go to the uh, the people of powers where the movie, I felt, like, lost its pacing and its uh, – because I felt like all the war scenes went by in, like, a minute. Like, you started and they felt like they just ended right away, even if they were, like, a six-minute uncut shot. But then – you get to like the talking scenes and those ones I just feel like really kill like the pace for the film. So talking about those talking scenes, those elements off the battlefield, that's actually something I really liked about this movie. I really, really liked how every once in a while we'd cut away from the war um, just to show how cruel war is and how the people who are pulling the strings of a war are so unaffected by it all. Like, I loved that it continually cut back to the general in the mansion 
and he'll go to his window and you can see smoke and you can see explosions in the distance. But he's just comfortably sitting in his house. And the biggest thing to him is that, you know, there's no fresh bread today. You know, that's that's what's affecting him. And meanwhile, he's making all the moves and sending people to die every single day. That was something that I loved about this film. And that's something that I think made this different than most other war movies is that it did allow us to get out of the war and show us how cruel war is and how unnecessary it is when the people who are are doing the fighting have absolutely no volition uh, and they they're not part of the cause that is being fought for so i don't know personally i really liked that i loved the mansion scenes i loved all the stuff with daniel Bruhl. i loved get, getting to know the uh, the characters these soldiers uh, especially, I think Felix Kammerer is fantastic in the film as the, the lead actor in the story. Um, I loved seeing the scenes where they would like go and steal stuff from local farms and everything. And personally, I did have an emotional connection to these characters. No, definitely. Um, I think that I hate to harp on the same point, but I, I really think that does go down to just the way we both experience this film. Because I feel like I would have been there right with you on a lot of these aspects if I did see it in a more controlled environment and a, a more immersive environment for a lack of terms. Because like I fully understand the importance and the uh, the relevance for having those scenes with Daniel Bruhl, with the general, with uh, even the Russian leaders that we encounter. Were they Russian? Maybe they were French. Leaders we encountered at one point and uh, the film, it's just, at least to me watching it for, like from my couch, those scenes really like felt very long at times. And I was like, okay, let's hop back to where we were. I will be completely honest and say I've never watched the original Aqua on the Western Front. My knowledge of the book is very minimal. So this was my introduction. So if that's like how the book is, how the original was, then uh, that's just a blind spot for me. Just for at least watching this film without the prior knowledge of anything, it just really killed the pace and momentum for my viewing experience. So let's talk about the text because you've already said that the story elements didn't really impact you the way that they were meant to. What do you think of the tech elements, the cinematography, the sound, the score, the production design? Because for me, like I said, I think that this film is like technical perfection and it's only grown on me in hindsight. The more I think about it, the more I'm like, wow, the cinematography is definitely best of the year. The sound is just so huge and immersive. I love the score, the like where it'll just be silent and then you hear this droning like industrial electronic sound that of course feels very out of place for the time period of the story. But in a sense, what it's doing is making you feel like a little bit taken aback, a little bit um, nervous, a little anxious because of that sort of like, uh, it, it almost feels like a siren put through like a heavy industrial electronic synthesizer. And then I love the production design as well. I think it was just beautifully done. And the way they captured No Man's Land and the trenches just felt like nothing else that's been done with World War One, and everything's been done with World War One. So it was pretty amazing that they could, they could capture it in such a realistic way. But how did you feel about the text? I, I did my little rundown there. What's, what's your take on all of these? No, I fully agree with everything that you said. And I, 
to heart back on this. I watched this at home and I still felt immersed. I still felt like I was in the trenches. I was in, on the front and uh, the score that burn, 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 that you're talking about, I had some stuff to do today while I was walking around and I threw on the score while I was listening, uh, walking around. I was like, this is really good even outside of the movie as well. The production design was amazing because this isn't a one like 1917, but there are some scenes that are a little bit extended where you may stay with a shot for two, three minutes. So having just the visual landscape to not just be where you're physically at, but everything around you was very, I think, impressive. The sound work was really good. The cinematography. And I would even say the editing choice that were made in those war scenes were all very much top notch. So the visual effects while we're at it too, nothing looked like, Oh, this was fake. This was cheesy. This was like not all natural. Like everything that occurred while on the fields just felt very good because like war movies are usually like if they hit they're usually like one of my favorite movies of the year like 1917 was in my top three of that year and dunkirk was my favorite of that year so all on the western fronts and like if i had a best picture line, a personal one right now would be in my 10 it just wouldn't be like my top top okay interesting are there any moments that stick out for you in general any scenes that are sticking with you so taking the war stuff aside, because I've talked about how much I've loved like the battle scenes, going more to like the human to human interaction. I really like the scene between Paul and Cat, where they're sitting, taking a leak, uh, using the bathroom, and Cat hands Paul a letter from his wife and asks him to read it. And Paul reads him the letter, and at the end we find out Cat doesn't know how to read, and he's very much urging Paul like, "Hey, when we leave the war, because we're about to leave soon." Please go to college. Learn how to read. That way you can interact with your family. You can build a life for yourself. This doesn't have to be the only thing you're known for is going to war. And that scene really impacted me. But to just call out one from the fight scenes, uh, the the uh, the prologue is so good, so immersive. So all those technical elements that we just raved about, 10 out of 10 on that scene alone. Yeah, when, when I said the prologue, like that whole sequence where – you don't know who anyone is, but you know that they look like kids and they're running around and they're scared and things are loud and frightening and it feels like you're in a horror movie more than a war movie. And then to follow this character all the way until he's dead and then for it to follow the jacket and show you that someone picks up the jacket, takes it in, and then we see it be sewn up. And then we see that jacket go to the main character of the film. Like, what a goddamn way to open up a movie. Like, right away, that just tells us, like, this is a different war movie than what you're used to. This is not about honor. This is not about glory. This is about, like, blood and dirt and pain. Um, and to me, that opening scene is just so magnificent. I'd say one other moment for me, without spoiling too much, um, it's the second time they go and rob the farm. And they've run mm -hmm. away from the farm, and they're in the forest, and you see something in the forest after they've robbed uh, the farm. That's a moment to me that just like, oh, okay. Crushing. Wow. It's absolutely crushing. So... Oscar chances for this movie. Now, I'll start with this. I'm a little disappointed because I know after I said it, uh, after I saw it, I said, if Netflix was smart, they would push this movie. Now, I'm very happy that Netflix is pushing Pinocchio. But are they pushing this? It doesn't really feel like it. It really doesn't. It doesn't feel like they uh, heard 
the buzz out of TIFF and went, yeah, this is this is a push for us. I still see it getting some nominations, though. I just don't see it making picture, mostly because Netflix doesn't care about it. But I, I do think that this makes international. It could even be a winning contender for international. I think it makes sound. I'd love to see it in cinematography and makeup, but those are definitely longer shots. Um, but looking at this film, it reminds me a lot of Das Boot, which was a film from the 1980s. It was a German film. That film got nominated for uh, Best Director, Best International, Best Cinematography, Editing, Sound, Score, like so many different things. And I, I could see a world where this gets all of that, but I just don't think that this is that world. I I mean, I kind of tease this when we we're talking about Triangle of Sadness, but I think of All Quiet on the Western Front was an English language movie. This could win Best Picture. It would have the push. It would have the support. It would be a picture, director, maybe even actor, screenplay, and all those texts that you just mentioned contender. But sadly, it's not, even though we've seen progression with the Academy in the last few years with Drive My Car or even Parasite winning, uh, you have to get a lot of push to still make it into the conversation. Even another round, which is a movie that had a huge push, had a lot of buzz, still missed out on picture. So I don't think this movie is getting in picture right now. I still think there's a chance if this becomes the critic's choice out of left field, like how Drive My Car was at one point last season. But I don't really see that happening. I think there's other movies that the critics will pick for that choice this year. So at the moment, I have this at number two for international. I have it at number four for sound. So those are the two nominations I have it getting. But then I also have at number six for cinematography, production design, and visual effects, where it easily could rise in the top five. But at the moment, I don't have them there. And then in my top 10, but not in my top six, it would be editing, adapted screenplay, and hair and makeup, which I think are three very good categories for this movie, like with how weak adapted screenplay should be. A lot of people know this book. I feel like this is like a sure-in for adapted or hair and makeup, the prosthetic work, the blood, the the gore in this movie is so well done. That should be in. And editing war films, usually like that's the Academy's thing. I just think this movie, like you mentioned, is not getting the Netflix treatment where I mentioned before in the show, there's an avenue for all these movies. And I still think there is an avenue with this. Like I mentioned with like the New York film critics or the LA film critics being like, this is our film of the year to regain the buzz. I just don't see the hype around that movie right now because it just came out and it didn't come and go, but it kind of felt like it came and went off of Netflix this weekend. Yeah. Well, the thing that I feel with it, I mean, you say that your hope would be that the LA critics champion it or the New York critics champion it. I don't think that's possible. I think that we've seen that, by and large, critics don't give a shit about this movie. Um, and so if this film were to get buzz, it's not that critics don't like it, it's that they don't love it. So if this film were to get buzz, it would be with the guilds, and it would be with industry in general. So if we start to see this making all of the guilds, that's something to pay attention to. But as it is, uh, this film being the film that it is, being an international film with not a whole lot of acclaim. Uh, if we don't see it make all the guilds, this is not really something worth paying a whole lot of attention to for the Oscar race, which is too bad. Now, we've got a little bit of a quick segment here. So, Dill, you watched Triangle of Sadness today. That is a Palme d'Or winner. And I want to do a little talk about Palme d'Or winners right now. I mean, we'll be able to talk more about this in May next year when we're not really in the Oscar season. Maybe we'll do more of a breakdown or even like a tier list of Palme d'Or winners. But let's just talk about the Cannes Film Festival and the Palme d'Or. So I did some research today. 
very interestingly, there have been 14 films that have won the Palme d'Or and gone on to get a Best Picture nomination, um, which is actually shockingly low for, you know, the biggest prize in the world. Um, only 14 of them have gotten Best Picture nominations. Feels very low to me, um, especially because there's been like over 70 years of the Cannes Film Festival. And Parasite is the only film to win Best Picture that has also won the Palme d'Or. The only film out of everything, which is crazy to me. And if we look at films that have gotten the Palme d'Or and then later on uh, gone on to, um, you know, get nominated for the Oscars, in the past, uh, since the beginning of the expanded era of the Oscars, these are the films that have made it into different categories. So in 2019, we had Parasite, which got six nominations and four wins, including Best Picture. 2018, we had Shoplifters, which was nominated for International. 2017, we had The Square, which was nominated for International. Then in 2012, we had Amour, which was nominated for Best Picture, picked up five nominations and one win for International Feature. 2011, we had The Tree of Life, which picked up three nominations, including Best Picture. And in 2009, The White Ribbon picked up two nominations for International Feature and Cinematography. Um, but just on a personal level, looking at the list of... Palm Door winners. What are some of your favorite Palm winners, Dylan? So I feel like if you ask this question to like a hundred people, like ninety-five of them would say Parasite, Pulp Fiction, Taxi Driver, Apocalypse Now. Yeah. So give us something a little bit more non-conventional. I would want to throw a bone to Othello and The Pianist, which are two movies I really like for very different reasons, and I feel like don't get as talked about as much. Some for better reasons, and some for just it's old. But there's those are two movies I very much help me in my evolution just growing up loving film and like movies that really got me into like okay movies can be more than just like popcorn flicks so what is it about othello for you because that's one i that's the uh the orson wells othello right correct yes i'm not a huge fan of that one what is it that you really love about that film I'm just a huge, like when I was younger, before I was really into film, it was theater for me. And Shakespeare being someone that is like the staple for theater and Othello being one of his, not like big ones, but the next tier. And with how I kind of am as a person, I don't go for like the big, like, oh, these are the ones you should check out first. I go to like the next tier. And then uh, sometimes getting access to a play could be a little bit harder. So you go watch the film version and that just happened to be the one I watched and, um, I haven't watched it in a little bit, but it's one when I was younger. It was one of the, like the first movies I can remember really watching, and I very much enjoyed it then. So it's always been like more of like a personal like favorite type thing. I like I said, I probably haven't watched it in nearly ten years. So if I watch it again today, maybe I wouldn't be as high on it. But it's one that at one point was a very crucial movie that just in like my viewing experience. No, that's that's a fantastic answer, and I mean I should watch it again because I love Orson Welles. Have you seen Chimes at Midnight? I have not. Oh my god, dude. Okay, I'm going to recommend you a movie that's going to be one of your new favorite movies. If you like Shakespeare, if you like what Orson Welles did with Othello, Chimes at Midnight. So Orson Welles, basically, he took three separate plays that are um, Shakespeare's history plays. And he took the character of Falstaff. He took all of the scenes where Falstaff is a minor character in these other characters' stories, and he put them all together into this movie. 
and made Falstaff into the main character instead of being a supporting character. Um, and so it's all Shakespeare's text, but the way that he does it is he like creates his own Shakespearean play using Shakespeare's words and using a Shakespearean character. Um, and the movie's just so beautifully made. So if you like Othello, you're going to love that. And one other recommendation for you, this is my favorite Palme d'Or winner. And this is a film that it got, I think it got like two or three Oscar nominations, um, but it did not get into Best Picture. I know it got into screenplay, I know it got into song, I know it got into uh, score, and I know it got into international feature, but it should have gotten Best Picture. Have you ever seen The Umbrellas of Cherbourg? I have not. Ooh, okay, this is another one. I'm going to check in on you and see if you've watched this in a couple weeks' time. The Umbrellas of Cherbourg is the Palme d'Or winner from 1964. It is a fully sung-through musical. Um, the film follows this couple, uh, and the young woman, her parents, they own, uh, an umbrella shop and her boyfriend that she's just mad for, he's going off to war. Um, and when he's away at war, she discovers that she's pregnant. Um, and the film is so, oh my God, it's beautiful. It's one of Damien Chazelle's biggest inspirations for La La Land, um, it's just so colorful. It uses the colors pink and yellow and blue so beautifully. Like, man, when, when I say you're going to love this movie, because I know you love musicals, you're going to love this movie. And then when you love this movie, I have more recommendations for you because this director who made this movie, he made so many musicals that are just like some of the most amazing things of all time. And yeah, looking at Umbrellas of Cherbourg, it's one of those films that like, yeah, it got... It, it broke the foreign language film curse. It got nominated for screenplay. It got nominated for a few other things, but it just couldn't make it into best picture. But it really, really should have. Um, but it did get into international. And we're at that point in the show where we're getting into some predictions. And I've talked a lot about international feature in the past. But Dylan, now it's your turn to talk about international feature. What are you predicting to show up in this lineup? So, obviously, I'm no international expert like Matt and Arno, who came on the show a few weeks ago to go in a deep dive over this category, but I did take what they said to heart and restructured my little lineup here and have made some changes, as well as some personal stuff I have on here as well, because number 10 is a film called Klondike from Ukraine, which is what I'm actually going to get to see this weekend, so maybe I can kind of early predicted before seeing like oh yeah this seems like something or not it's not one i have seen most people have in their five but i think around 10 seems like a solid spot move to number nine for uh, a movie i always say wrong but let me give another try alcaraz yeah that's good boom from spain uh, we talked about this one before i originally had this in my top five the last time i got to do international feature but from hearing what you and arno had to say as well as our discussions throughout the season and seeing other people's reactions it has dropped down still not completely out but not in my top five from eight to number one is movies i could see getting nominated that includes corsage from australia not australia austria and saint omer from france and holy spider from denmark as my eight seven and six corsage is a movie i know that you don't really like but some other people out there do like a bit and then saint omer is a movie that uh while it has won some very big awards also has been deemed very inaccessible and hard to watch 
which could favor well for this category, but also not favor well. And there's some other movies that just have a lot more buzz and a lot more recognizability. And Holy Spiders is a movie I've had in my top five all season long. But this past week, we've seen its score from critics drop a little bit, which uh, gave me an opportunity to switch it out for my number four movie. I'm going to leapfrog five for a second, but number four being close from Belgium, because this movie, everyone I hear talk about this movie, talk about how good it is. You've even mentioned how you think this could win the category. So this was originally my number six. It moved up to four for me and probably could be a little bit higher. I'm a little bit biased with my number one, but uh, we'll get there in a little bit. Number five, circling back, is EO from Poland. I still think just the wave, the the passion behind this movie is going to get it in. Uh, that's why I only have it at five. But even for my little film festival, the Virginia Film Festival, this was the first movie to sell out. Not Knives Out. Not Women Talking. Really? Not Empire of Light. It was EO. And EO is the only movie I'm not confirmed to see just because it sold out so quick. And um, just that alone shows me this passion of this movie, not just from like major, major Oscar followers. Because like, yeah, this has been a meme in our community for a little bit. But this movie's the words getting out about this movie. I like it had it showed an IMAX at TIFF and it it's out. shown at a lot of and it sold out in IMAX and it's shown at a lot of film festivals and even at my film festival, which isn't a big film festival, it was the first movie to sell out even before Knives Out. So that's my case for it being an international feature. Then my top three. Uh, these are the ones that most people probably have one, two, three, which isn't very inspired from me. But at the moment, it's decision to leave at number three, which I still think could go either way. It either could be a nominee or it could miss. Uh, All Quiet on the Western Front stays at two. I was really hoping seeing it would like cement me to put it at one to match what you and a lot of other people have said. But I still have Bardo at number one and the the recut, the rising score after its Mexico release. And it's uh, very immediately soon to be released uh, cut coming to theaters in about three weeks just shows that the passion's still here for it. The industry still really likes this movie. And at the end of the day, this could be the only film in this category get nominated in another category. Because yes, at the moment, we still have All Quiet getting sound or getting cinematography. But as I mentioned before, it kind of came and went from Netflix this week, uh, this past weekend. And if it continues like that and Netflix doesn't give it any time of day, Bardo could be the only one with another nominee in another category. That doesn't always mean it's going to be the winner. But... We know the passion's there. AGI is a proven winner, and this movie just has a recipe, even if the somewhat critical reaction and audience scores originally were not the highest. Okay. Um, I'll give some counterpoints in some of your things. So for me, I think Bardo is very interesting because I think Bardo has a chance of being the first film to be nominated for both international feature and best picture that doesn't win international feature. And so my reasoning there, I don't think Bardo will be nominated for best picture, but if it is, I still don't think it wins international feature. And the reason being that this is a film that clearly has some people who are very passionate about it. And it's a, it seems like a, a small, but very, very vocal group of people who love the film. But that said, I don't think that it's going to be universally liked enough to get enough votes. And so I think that there's going to be, while there's going to be some people that absolutely love the shit out of it, there's also going to be some people that hate it so much that they would never vote for it and they'd vote for anything else over it. So I think that there is a world where Bardo doesn't win international feature, but 
factors into other categories. Now, I think that Decision to Leave, I've been talking a little bit of smack on Decision to Leave's Oscar chances all year long, saying like, oh, just because it's South Korea and, you know, they had Parasite, that doesn't mean Decision to Leave is going to happen. But I, I rewatched it this week, and I think I was wrong about that. I do think Decision to Leave is happening now. And I think that with the buzz that's happening around it, with the critical love that it has been getting, with the, um, the, the story, I previously had said that it was a little bit too out there for the Academy. I don't think it is. It's a police procedural. It's, it definitely makes the audience work. But if you just, you know, enjoy it as a police procedural, that works too. And I think it's, uh, it's not dangerous or, you know, boundary pushing in a way that would turn people off of it. Um, it's a film that on a surface level, I think anyone can enjoy. And then people who dig deeper into it can find even more to enjoy in it. So yeah, I, I mean, I do think that Decision to Leave actually can win. And I would say, personally, I think that the winner of this category is between your top four right here. Because um, I would also say Close has a great shot. Close is extremely emotional. Uh, it has one of the best lead performances of the year in the main kid in this film. It is shocking in many ways. Like this film, it, it made my jaw drop at one point in it. Um, personally, I, I would say that this is winning, although I might change that decision to leave this week. But yeah, close close feels like a winner to me, and I think it is a little bit low at number four here, just because this is like an emotional kick to the nuts. Um, but that said, I think EO is a little bit too high, because I think a lot of the what you're seeing with it selling out is that it's it has such an interesting premise that I think some people are are very very excited to see it. Does that mean that everyone likes it? No, um, because it's it's very very polarizing film and like we've, we've seen even with like the oscar expert walked out of the can premiere it was just did not like the film and there's gonna be a lot of people that react like that so i don't know i wouldn't put eo in my five it's a little bit too out there i would say don't be too phased by the critics drop for holy spider holy spider i still think is in Solid, solid. I hope to see Holy Spider soon. I hope to see EO soon. And I hope to see Close soon to fully get better grasp on those three movies. But uh, you made one point there. I'd like to comment before we move over to Best Director. You said uh, uh, the Oscar expert walked out of EO. That's why we got Brother Bro. So it Best is. Director, though, let's hear what your 10 is here because I see some changes here on the sheet that some make me happy, some make me sad. So, okay, I just mentioned that I think Decision to Leave is uh, is going, and that's going to factor into my Best Director Top 10. So I'll just, I'll start with some honorable mentions, some things that I think there is a world where they get in, but I don't think it will happen. That's Ryan Coogler, that's Guillermo del Toro, and that's Ruben Ostlund. Those three are my honorable mentions. I could see that happening, but I just... Um, you know, I'm not putting them in my 10. I think this is a very strong, strong year for director. And it's it's hard for me even to make a top five here. So starting at number 10, I've got Inyaritu for Bardo. Reason being, director's branch, they love him. 
Um, even if the film is not widely loved, the director's branch will like him a lot. And I know that you have him in your top five, so you're probably pretty happy to see him in my top 10, although you probably wish he was a little bit higher, but definitely not over some of the other ones I have up above. At number nine, I've got Joseph Kaczynski for Top Gun Maverick. As much as this would be a horrible nomination, as much as I don't think that the director's branch ever would go for Top Gun Maverick, the film is a, a technical marvel. Uh, it's a film that's very popular, that popularity is not dying out. It's pretty undeniable to say that this is in the top 10 for best director. Number eight, here we go. Park Chan-wook, Indecision to Leave. The reason I have Park in here for Decision to Leave is not because I think the film is a best picture contender. It's purely because... Let's think about what BAFTA is going to do. BAFTA is totally going to nominate Park Chan-wook. They're going to do it. They're going to do it. And we've seen in previous years that BAFTA can be an indication of a spoiler coming in to the Best Director race that DGA didn't get. Ryosuke Hamaguchi, Thomas Vinterberg. Um, those two are films that BAFTA went for. Pavel Pavlikovsky. BAFTA went for those films in director, and then they made it at the Oscars. Could Park Chan-wook follow along the footsteps there? I think absolutely. Um, is he going to be Bong Joon-ho? No, no. But he could be Ryosuke Hamaguchi in this category. Now we've got, uh, at number seven, Martin McDonough in The Banshees Vinisherin. Now, actually, what I, what I will say is from eight until, like, five, all of these are interchangeable. I really don't know which way this is going. So anything from eight to five is just fighting for that last spot and could change from day to day. Martin McDonough has been snubbed before for three billboards, but if anything, that's more of a case of why he should be in there this year. And I've heard a lot of people praising the direction of this film more than they were for three billboards. So that's worth noting. Number six, I have James Cameron. Uh, this normally would be solidly in my top five, but we've seen with past year, Denis Villeneuve, he got every nomination that he needed, still missed uh, the Oscars. The Oscars don't always go for that big spectacle, that big sci-fi uh, director. And in this case, unless Avatar is a solid top five contender, I don't know if it can make it in when Dune couldn't make it. So then at number five, and like I said, number five through eight, uh, so Park Chan-wook, Martin McDonough, James Cameron, and this last one, they're all interchangeable. And that last one is Todd Field for Tar. Um, with this, I do think he's going to fill that artsy director spot. But that said, that could also be Park Chan-wook. Um, but at the moment, I'm going to say it's Tar. I'm going to say it's Todd Field uh, until BAFTA nominations are out. If Park Chan-wook is in BAFTA, I'm putting him in, in here, I think, too. Then my top four. This top four feels pretty unshakable to me. Got Sarah Pauly at number four. Daniels at number three, which a lot of people say could be snubbed, but I find that pretty baffling because that film feels very director heavy. At number two, I've got Damien Chazelle for Babylon, who I think also could be snubbed if the film underperforms. And at number one, I've got the winner, winner chicken dinner, is Steven Spielberg for The Fablemans. Like I've said in previous weeks, he's not winning picture, but he is winning director. And I am not willing to call that a lock, but it's pretty much as certain as I can be about any category at this point in time. 
So, yeah, I really like your lineup still. We have, I think, three of the same five here because obviously I have Cameron in and I have Bardo fighting for that fifth spot. Um, I think the only person who can challenge Spielberg for this win is going to be James Cameron if Avatar is as massive as I'm currently predicting it to be. I think that is the chance for Spielberg to lose. But if Avatar is not a Best Picture top three, top four type movie, then yes, uh, I think this is Spielberg's to lose. Um, I'm really happy, though, to see Joseph Kaczynski at least in the top ten because as much as people don't want to see this happen, he's going to get nominated at places just because of how big that movie was, how much of a spectacle you can kind of say maybe not but how uh how the aerial sequences are done we'll get it some love somewhere and honestly i could see him being that the one of the dga that misses because the dga normally goes three out of five four out of five he could be that one that just doesn't correlate and yeah, he it just fits right up the alley though he could even make uh golden globes that too yes i think i have him at golden globes actually it would make sense because i think we both think that top gun's winning golden globe for drama mm-hmm so it would make a lot of sense there. Now, do you think that I have, uh, you know, I mean, you just talked about your international lineup. I've got Park Chan-wook over a near or two here. How does that make you feel? I mean, I'm team Bardo or bust at the moment. Uh, I haven't seen either of these movies, so any take, <laughs> I any claim I make is purely off of biasness and off of uh, just what I've seen online. Because yes, Decision Lee's been getting positive critical buzz, but my my whole point with Bardo all seen has been is directors and screenwriters. They like Bardo. They like the direction. They like the script. They like the movie. And the people who are going to be nominated and voting, for the most part, are going to be those two sets of people. And they're being so vocal about it already online. Just imagine once this movie goes wide and a lot of people get to see it, whether it is in a the theater or whether it is on Netflix. Right, right. Okay. So let's get to the big one, best picture. I just dropped my ranking a couple days ago. What is your best picture top 20 like right now? So it hasn't changed that much, honestly, since the last time I did it, because I haven't seen any of these movies besides two of them in that being time, being All Quiet and being uh, Triangle of Sadness, and I guess Tail and Tar as well. But I gave my updates on them last time. So my main switches is between the 14 and 20 range. My best picture 10 is still essentially the same. But uh Triangle of Sadness still is not in my top 20. It's the first movie out of the top 20. Uh, after seeing it, really cemented that where, yeah, sure, I could see it, but no, it's not going to happen. Um, the uh, My bold, not bold, but my what are you doing, Dylan, take of the day is going to be, I have The Sun and Empire Light at 19 and 20 over Triangle of Sadness and over Decision to Leave and over RRR, three movies that have a lot more passion. But we know from fact, whether it's you or other pundits on the scene saying, hey, there is a demographic that loves this movie. And that demographic still makes up a large majority of the voting base. Do I think it's going to happen? No, but we know there is support for those movies from people who can vote uh then we get to the top 18 this is where we get to some movies i have seen recently like till like all on the western front and then you get to some movies that i am lower on than the the consensus because i don't have brendan fraser winning actor so the whale's only at 16 for me i um don't have pinocchio as netflix's main push so it's only at 15 for me but it is rising uh, i have black panther wakanda forever at 14 because i think avatar is the bigger movie for the oscars and then we get to my top 13 and honestly 9 through 13 are battling for the 9 and 10 spots for me at the moment. I'm sure in like a week or two, Pinocchio would be up in this group. Wakanda Forever could maybe get in. Maybe The Whale gets in once I see it and see like, oh, maybe 
yeah, Brendan Fraser could happen. It's not just people's goodwill for him himself. So at 13 right now, I have the Woman King. The same thing I keep saying all season long. This release date is going to be the death of it. I think there's a chance for this movie to be a huge player across the board, getting like five or six nominations, uh, racking up text. But the release date doesn't really bode well for it. Glass Onion's at 12. What is this really getting? Sure, you could say screenplay. Sure, you could say supporting actress. Is that really enough to propel it into Best Picture? Yeah, you can say Coda for last year, but Coda had Best Picture winning hype. Uh, Knives Out does not. Um, then you have Tar at 11. This is a movie which in about three days I can move it into my 10 once I see She Said. Uh, she Said is my number 10 at the moment. Uh, it's waning fast. This is one I think when we started this podcast, you and I both had this in the top five. Maybe I was a little bit lower than you were, but this was this was in the upper echelon of Best Picture, and it probably has a few days left. Uh Everything I've heard about this movie seems like I should take it out of my 10, but I see it so recently, there's no need to jump the gun. Then we get to my number nine, the bias picked of the day, Bardo or False Chronicle for a handful of truths, and my handful of truths is it getting best picture. Uh, then we have Elvis, another, uh, you could say bias pick. I don't know. I fully believe this has been an Oscar movie all season long, even before I saw it. This screams Oscar bait across the board. I saw it, and it was really good Oscar bait, and I don't know how they can't love this movie like whether it is in picture whether it is an actor whether it is in uh costumes production maybe even editing maybe even sound at that point that's like six nominations why wouldn't it get picture this is the only thing warner brothers can even consider to focus on you can make the case for batman in like two texts but other than that elvis all the way yes warner brothers has their issues at the moment but elvis was a box office hit they have no reason not to give it a push Babylon is a movie I'm lower one than a lot of people. This is the movie that screams to me. It could be the snub in a lot of categories, whether it is Chazelle and director, whether it is Pitt and supporting its screenplay and original. But at the moment, I still think it's pretty good for picture. Then my top six is where things get a little bit hard. Uh, Banshees, Maverick, Fablements, Everything Everywhere, Women Talking, Avatar The Way of Water. All interchangeable for the most part. They all have a case, I think. Uh, those are my six cases for Best Picture at the moment. I can see a avenue for all of them. Some are a lot more likely than others. Like Maverick's case is very slim. Women Talking's case is a little bit slimmer. But we've seen the passion for everything everywhere. Banshees could win screenplay. It could win lead actor right there. That's a good combo for Picture. Fablemans has the Spielberg hype. Avatar is what I've been gunning for all season. And yeah, so that's at least how my best picture is. I know not a lot of movement since the last time I read it off to everyone out there, but not a lot has happened in my little personal world since then to really cause for a lot of switches. The Fablemans at four is definitely too low for this point in the season. I know that what we're predicting is what we think is going to happen later on. But that said, I still think like you got to have it at second place at this point, because if it's not winning, it's the runner up and it will be the runner up all year long. So um, I think a fall from grace to number four out of its current front runner spot is a little bit bold to say. So even though I'd love to see you pump um, everything ever all at once up into that number one spot, I, I really think you got to have the Fablemans over it right now, because if you don't have the Fablemans winning best picture, it should be number two. No, I fully get that point. My rebuttal would just be is I just don't see it winning picture Why the three I have above it. And honestly, Banshees, in my eyes, is probably above Fablemans at the moment because I think Banshees might – I don't know. I see it in a few days, so that would give a better mm -hmm. sense. But from what I'm hearing, Banshee seems very likely to win original screenplay, and 
in that case, it has original. It's getting nominated lead actor, supporting actor, maybe twice in supporting actor, supporting actress. Maybe McDonough comes into the director. That's a very great above the line haul. There's a case for picture. Everything everywhere. We've mentioned the case for picture here on the show countless times. Women talking, as you've said, doesn't seem like a best picture winner, but a very strong contender. Maverick has a shot as crazy as that sounds and avatar has been the movie i've made the case for numerous times here on the show so i don't know like i said the top six for me at the moment is pretty interchangeable give or take yeah maybe looking at it on november 2nd fableman should be one fableman should be two but i'm looking for i don't know the date of the oscars this year late february early march 2023 is what my ranking is for so i get fableman should be higher in this moment just then I don't know. I could see the Fablemans not being the runner-up on Oscar voting day. I'm a little nervous for you to watch Women Talking. I'm going to be honest, because that's a film that I love so dearly. And I I have a feeling you're not going to love it the way I do. Quite possibly, but we find out so we soon. We find out so soon. But, I mean, you've mentioned that you were not a fan of Power of the Dog, and I really hope you like this more than that. But it has a lot of the same elements to it. I really hope you like the score, because like we said before, we usually feel very different about music and movies. So I know. I mean, you'll, you'll hear my reactions a lot sooner than everyone out there. Everyone out there has a whole, I guess, from when we're recording this week and a half. This won't come out until like a week before the normal time anyway. But uh, everyone out there will hear my thoughts of women talking, its score, its script, its best picture, not chances, but my likingness for it for my personal best picture. Uh, and it'll be it'll be a really good fun episode. I think what's going to be really interesting is at the very end of the year when we do our personal awards, comparing them, or even doing like an amalgamation of our two like lists where we both have to love a film for it to go into. I feel like that could be really fun. I feel like we'd have some major major disagreements yes. there. Because um, I have a. Uh, <laughs> I have a running track that I keep throughout the year. Like if the year ended right now, would be my uh, best of the year. So just to throw a little sprinkle in there for a tease when we get there, because these are movies I know that you would not have up here. Bullet Train's my number seven for best picture, and Ana de Armas is my number four really? for actress, and Mark Rylance is my number five for actor in Phantom of the Open. So that is some great discussion points for another day. That is, we we have a lot to talk about in the future, and. You have a lot to see this week, so I'm going to let you get some rest because tomorrow night you're going to be seeing Glass Onion and you are in for a wild, wild ride. And uh, when you get back, we'll talk about it with no spoilers so that anyone out there can watch our episode on Glass Onion. Exactly, because we don't want to spoil it for you. I haven't been spoiled yet, so why would I want to ruin that opportunity for everyone out there? Because you get to see this in theaters and that is the way that... If anything from what we said today, all Clown the Western Front should have been theaters. And guess what? Glass Onion's getting that treatment, thankfully. Absolutely. But anyways, until next time, my name is Matt. And my name is Dill. And this is Fancy Film Ball. Thank you for tuning to this episode of Fancy Film Ball with Matt and Dill. Keep up to date with us on Twitter at FFilmBall. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts. We even upload a video format of the podcast to YouTube if you want to see our faces. Thank you for listening to this episode of the show, and come back next week.